0: Welcome to God is Open. Today on God is Open, we have a very, very painful podcast we're going to do. And it's painful in the sense that we're going to be going over the challenges of open theism by Dr. James White. And James White's already pretty painful to listen to. But uh, the first time I heard this, I was driving in my car. I do a lot of driving, right? And on long drives, you want to uh, turn on something to listen to. So I'm listening to this guy prattle on for like 40, 50 minutes. And he hasn't even opened the Bible once. He just likes to talk and listen to himself talk. And it's, it's just nothing solid, nothing biblical. It's just his criticisms, his own personal feelings. Oh, he just keeps talking and talking. And so in that sense, this is going to be very painful. And we'll see how long we could bear with it today. We might not do the whole thing. Probably definitely won't do the whole thing. But we'll see how long we could bear until we cut off this podcast. Maybe we'll do a follow-up. We'll see. All right, let's, let's hear James White, his, his, his issues with open theism, his monologue. I did think it was somewhat
1: unusual, and now I realize it was only me who was unusual, uh, to start off with a discussion of such a rather difficult subject. Difficult only in the sense, not that it's not vitally important because I believe that it is, but difficult in the sense that sadly, for many in evangelicalism today, the idea that God's nature, and God's being could be central, not only to the apologetic task, but also to, I would say, to every task, uh, every especially every pastoral task. Um, when I speak of open theism, I do so as one who, uh, in God's providence, had to work as a chaplain in a hospital for a number of years. And I had to run law
0: support groups. It was not a Christian hospital, and so I was... All right, so here's a tip, and this is uh, coming from someone who's, whose kid had cancer. My kid had uh, leukemia, and people would come and say, Oh, this is all the will of God. God has a reason for this. No, no one wants to hear this nonsense when they're in pain, when they're suffering. Oh, your child died or whatever, and uh, this was God's ultimate plan for his ultimate glory. And James White, I think he realizes this. I think he mentions it later in this podcast. But no one wants to hear that nonsense. No one cares about your stupid theology in a time of real suffering. Your theology is all nice and and well for people who are living in the lap of luxury. But people who are suffering, no one cares about your theology. I was dealing with individuals who were not believers most of the time.
1: And so I come to this with, a, with an element in, in my own background that, that makes me even more concerned about the subject of open theism because I see it as striking at the very ground of, the, uh, of our ability to give not only counsel, but comfort in the face of tragedy.
0: Yeah, your kid died, and this was all God's plan to his greatest glory. Congratulations! no no one wants to hear that no one wants to hear that don't even don't even Uh, there are tremendously practical
1: implications on a pastoral level to what you believe about God in fact I would like to suggest that if what we believe about God does not impact our pastoral counseling we've got things absolutely backwards unfortunately that's how It happens in many situations. We grab onto an ism, we grab onto a program, something that's supposed to quote-unquote work, and then that ends up determining our theology rather than our theology
0: determining what it is we're going to say and how it is we're going to deal with people. Hmm, Hmm. that that almost sounds like Calvinism. It almost sounds like you're projecting, Mr. James White, your extra-biblical theology you want to force on the Bible, and then you're going to add that... uh, theology that's not in the bible that you made up yourself and you're going to give that to people suffering and pain great in the doctrine of god i when i teach
1: systematic theology for golden gate seminary i try vainly at times to convince my students that the old model is really not that far off and what i mean by that is that in the olden days systematic theology was the core it was the hub and from it went all the other elements of a theological education. Hence, if you had a class on, on the doctrine of the church, it was related to what you believed systematically. What you believed about the church, what you believed about the word of God, what you believed about the ministry. You brought all these things together. And there was this quaint idea that what you believed about this over here should be consistent with what you believed about this doctrine over here. I say quaint because I hate to report to you that in the large portion of theological education today that's no longer the case. In fact, in many seminaries systematic theology has pretty much moved from the central position to the church history section. The idea being there were people who used to actually once believe that you could form a systematic theology.
0: So, so what is his actual criticism here? His criticism is that Platonism is not the core teaching of these seminaries anymore, and that some seminaries are dealing with actual Christian issues. So when you see Paul writing to the churches, what's he dealing with? Is he dealing with uh, systematic issues, a systematic theology, or he's, is he dealing with real-life issues? what is the Christian church about? Is it about systematic theology or is it about relational theology? So the church descended into this whole focus on philosophy. And, you know, that happened uh, as soon as the church went to the Gentiles, as soon as the Jews were extinguished in 70 AD, and it was overran with these converts from the Greek world. They brought in their systemizing, they brought in their philosophy, and they changed the focus of the church from really a relational, uh, interpersonal religion into something that's more abstract and cerebral. And so he's lamenting that the church is focusing more on uh, social issues. They're focusing more on interrelational issues. And he's probably one of those guys who are like, oh, the churches, uh, when they're preaching, they should just preach preach only about the Bible only about reading the Bible, only about uh, talking about uh, what the Bible says, rather than how to apply things to your day-to-day life, how to live in your day-to-day life. What was the early church like? What was the early church like? And, you know, uh, I love reading about the Bible. I love reading about systematic theology, church history. I love reading about the ancient opinions of the writers. But but the truth is, the church was not founded on that. The church was not founded on... uh, Expositing systematic truths to all their listeners, it was it was focused on a relational theology, one which bonded a group of people together in a common pursuit, right? Relational and Calvinism's it doesn't like relationships, it doesn't like uh, social interaction, it doesn't like people bonding, it doesn't it wants an impersonal God. A God that's impassable, immutable, doesn't change. He controls everything. Our relationships don't matter as much because everything is minutely controlled by God. This, this, it's, it's a crazy theology. But uh, let's go on. There used to be people who thought that the Bible was so clear, that
1: Revelation was, was so perspicuous, that you could create a systematic theology.
0: How odd we've moved beyond that now. And it's all open theism's fault. So what is your point? What does this have to do with open theism? Are you going to tie it all together? Well, it's here to see if he does any of that, or if he's just throwing out general layments and just attributing it all to open theism. Yeah, no, no one knows. And now we know that, well, you can't even really develop a Pauline theology, can you? In many seminaries today, you can NT Wright did did you read and understand his stuff from your guy's debate Mr. James White I mean I mean Dr. James White from your debate with NT Wright uh, it doesn't sound like you understood his points and it under it really sounded like you were relying on emotional arguments. Oh, if you take this verse this way then there goes my theology over at this other part of the Bible. So so let's use our emotions to dictate the text. No, no. Now, people can make Pauline theology. Uh, N.T. Wright does. He systematizes Paul. He talks about Paul's overarching message. You know, people do this, and you lament it, and you just pretend that they don't. They don't understand Paul. Only, only Calvinists understand the Bible. They got this special, unique revelation. Uh, not these scholars of ancient church history. They don't understand Pauline the gospel, the Pauline mission, his points, in the cultural context of the time. Oh, those people don't get it. Calvinists do. And the Bible's all about Calvinism, predestination, where everyone's hand wiggles are meticulously controlled from all eternity. No.
1: You can't say the Apostle Paul said X, Y, or Z because you look at his epistles and, well, he didn't actually read, uh, write this whole section here. And of these ones here, we find, and I love this word, tension. Isn't that a wonderful theological term? Don't you hear it all the time?
0: There's tension in Paul. That's the nice way of saying. Yeah, there's going to be tension in like anyone's works. I'm sure if I read through all my blog posts I've ever made, there are going to be some tensions. There's going to be places where things don't quite align, and you know, there, there's going to be cognitive dissonance in any writer, anywhere. So thinking that the Bible is free from this uh, internal tension it's it's not relatable to human experience in paul contradicted paul we don't want to th- use the term contradiction because that's yeah well some people try to emphasize th- certain things in certain contexts in order to make certain points which if emphasized in a different context wouldn't go towards their overall point in another context we got to keep that in mind the people don't write with uh, pinpoint precision and all their texts never have any tension between it. All their writings always align. And you can't take uh, one point one point and then claim it's valid for this point over here and not valid for that. You no, know, people's, when they write, sometimes there's tension in their own writings. And it's not a contradiction. It's, it's not a bad thing. And yeah, there, there's tension in the Bible. And so in a nice postmodern way, we talk about
1: tension. And of course, that's assuming uh, that Paul and Peter are at loggerheads and and they're constantly arguing with one another, and James, oh good grief, he was, you know, way out on the other end over there. So the result of all this is what? Well, sadly many people come out of our seminaries today, and we wonder why, where the bold proclamation went. And I'm not talking about a narrow proclamation. There's a difference between a narrow proclamation and a bold proclamation. I'm not talking about a narrowness of mind where we don't know what anyone else believes. I'm not talking about a narrowness of mind that says, don't, don't confuse me with facts. I don't want to know about facts. I don't want to know about other
0: viewpoints, but a This, this all sounds like projection to me. So James White, he, he disregards what scholars say, scholarship, people who say that there were conflicts like Bart Ehrman. He writes about the conflicts between James and Paul. And their different uh, dispensations, and Paul's reach towards the Gentiles, and their conflicts on circumcision, and this is reinforced by Aslan. It's reinforced by Pagels, and these. This is uh, accurate scholarship. And he says, "Well, well, we just, well, we need to make bold proclamations that uh, there's no internal conflicts whatsoever. What, what, uh, on what evidence? What evidence you need to provide?" adequate counter evidence if you're going to make bold proclamations about things that don't have biblical support and what your biblical support is what you're basing your entire system on is your pre-assumptions that you bring to the bible rather than letting the text speak for itself you say well well of course the bible has to fit together in the way that i imagine right so everything has to fit together, and then I can make these bold proclamations, and it makes me feel nice and fuzzy inside, because I'm James White. I'm an emotional man. Uh, disregard the evidence, and uh, let's pretend we don't disregard the evidence, but uh, we can't understand our critics' points. Boldness of proclamation that grows out of
1: a confidence that God indeed has given us his word. He's preserved his word for us, and he has promised that his truth would always be with his people. We wonder where that went we pray for it and then what do we do well we basically don't take the time to consider what's being taught and what's being promulgated and hence we have a movement today and and uh, i guess i'll go ahead and move over to uh if i can here i was
0: just trying to get things set up and uh it's uh it's so that would have been maybe a good time to open up the Bible for the first time in this lecture, Mr. James White. Five minutes and a half and Just tell us where the Bible says that this preserved word, this Bible is going to be pure for all of eternity. King James Onlyism, Stuff like that. It Well, it doesn't quite exist in how you're presenting it here. So maybe, maybe this would be a good time to start your proof texting. But you don't. it's just a
1: motion. Now try doing this upside down and backwards, folks. Let's see if you can figure this one out. That's not easily done. Especially with these wonderful touchpads. Aren't they great? Who who invented the touchpad? I'd like to find out and do something really bad to them. I don't get it. Let's do it this way. And, ah. It's a little bit easier to see, isn't it? There are those teaching within evangelical churches today that today, which is uh, the 20th of August, 2004, God may be
0: quite nervous. He may be very nervous. Uh, I don't think anyone's teaching that. So try, try to throw out an example. Or, or are you strawmanning the other side? Are you, are you building straw men from your own emotions because uh, you are mentally unstable and the only way you could worship God is if he micromanages everything and you can't conceive, you'd have a nervous breakdown if God didn't control everything. So are you projecting your own mental insecurity onto your opposition? Why would God be nervous on August 20th of 2004?
1: Well, it's possible something really bad could happen tomorrow. Maybe there are people plotting something horrible today, just like they were on September 10th, 2001. And I imagine God was fairly nervous on September 10th, 2001, too.
0: Yeah, you would because you're mentally insecure. Find an open theist who said God was nervous on September 10th. You're not going to find one. You're not. So you're straw manning. You're purposely misrepresenting other people and you're projecting your own mental insecurity onto their positions. Because from
1: their perspective, God has all possible knowledge. Possible knowledge. What does that mean? Well, God has exhaustive knowledge of the present reality in this creation. And God can see the possibilities. But you see, the future does not exist. And so since the future does not exist, God does not have exhaustive knowledge of it. And hence, in part, it is open. It is open because that portion of the future that God does not know, because it does not yet exist, is that portion of the future that is going to come about through the actions of free creatures. And God does not know what free creatures will do. Now, someone may immediately say, well, wait a minute. If you say he has perfect knowledge of the present, and he has had perfect knowledge of the present all along, then that means he has had perfect knowledge of everything I have ever done, every thought I have ever had, and how I've acted on every impulse I've ever had. So don't you think that if, if you had perfect knowledge of an individual from the time they were conceived until they are 25 years of age, whatever, that you might have a pretty
0: decent idea of what they're going to do? Yeah. But- yep. Yes, an open theist believe that God does have a pretty good idea of what everyone's going to do. But sometimes in the Bible, he's surprised and he says, I thought you would return to me, but you didn't. And so we, we don't need to focus on Oh, God knows like almost everything everyone's going to do. We got to focus on the exceptions to that, right? There are very blatant exceptions throughout the Bible. It's the exception that proves the rule, Not not the other way around. It doesn't matter how many predictions I make about the future that come true. If I don't know one thing about the future, then I don't know the future omnisciently. But people are people. And
1: don't people do odd things? Haven't you ever surprised yourself? Haven't you ever been
0: going through the cafeteria line? and and? Uh... Doesn't God sometimes say that if a nation turns, then I will not do what I thought to do. And doesn't he say, now I know that uh, you will serve me, Abraham. And doesn't he say, I thought you would return, but you did not. So doesn't God use this language? Doesn't God talk like this all the time? Like sometimes... Not always. It's not typical. It's not like you're going to find it everywhere in the Bible. But especially in the prophets, when they're lamenting the actions of Israel, it's this continual hope that God has. It's not nervousness. Oh, I'm so nervous and shaky. and uh, It's hope. I, I hope you guys are going to do this, but you won't. And then it, it turns into frustration. How long will they reject me? And this is the Bible. This is what we're dealing with. James White, he's not opening a Bible. He's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about his own fragile emotions. He's a fragile man.
1: Let's put it this way. My wife would probably faint if going through a cafeteria line, I reached out and got almost any vegetable that God has ever created. (laughs) (laughs) You don't like vegetables. (laughs) Uh, I am not, uh, I am a dietician's nightmare in, in many ways, and uh, uh, there are a few vegetables, there's corn on the cob, and peas, and corn, and um, and peas, and um, that's about it. And uh, so almost anything else in that particular, if I reached out there and grabbed hold of some broccoli, my wife would faint. So would my kids. They would they'd have a celebration, they'd just think it was great. And uh, So sometimes we do surprise, even those who know us best. I may do that someday. I'm probably not going to eat it, but I may may grab it anyways, just simply to see what they would do. So sometimes we surprise ourselves, and evidently, sometimes we surprise God too. And so on September 10th, God knew the intentions of
0: all those men. So what's he trying to do here? He's trying to tie it to September 10th. Is that... Does he think, first of all, does he think that his audience is old enough to resonate with his example, whereas they had an emotional attachment the day the fow- towers fell? It's like, oh, I remember where I was. I was in calculus class, actually. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it probably doesn't resonate with his audience like he thinks. And he is building an emotional argument. He knew
1: what they intended to do. He had been watching this whole thing. But you see, God couldn't know because you see how many actions
0: God couldn't know, even though I can know my wife's future actions based on what I do, her reactions that she's going to have to me. Oh, I can't know my wife's future. No, you're, you're using equivocation. You're using knowledge differently in different circumstances. What you want God to have is uh, impeccable, 100% object-based knowledge, knowledge that doesn't include experiential knowledge and knowledge in which it originates within God himself, so that God's not receiving outside knowledge. That's what you want. That's the knowledge you want. That's the knowledge you want to argue. But you're going to use equivocation. You're going to say, oh, God can't have knowledge of what people do in the future because I'm going to use knowledge differently for how I know things in the future, and I'm going to use knowledge differently for what I think God should know in order to know things in the future. It's equivocation. It's a total double use of words, Definitist, the, the definitist fallacy where you're, you're arguing for definitions of words that are favorable to your own positions. No, God knew on September 10th what those hijackers were going to do, right? Things ...to take place in our world are not just the result of one person's
1: free choices, but of many people's free choices. I mean just look at what happened on that day on one aircraft they decided to fight back that aircraft didn't hit a building did it but they didn't really have that opportunity on the other ones they didn't know what was going on and so what if what if they had fought back what if there had been a particularly sharp security guy that day what if what if
0: what if the point is god could not know Yeah, God wouldn't know the particular details, but you know how your wife is going to react to a joke that you say. That doesn't mean you understand every single flicker of the hand, blink of the eye, and you know the future meticulously. God knew that these people were going to attempt to hijack these planes and would overall be successful because they have the element of surprise. That's how how we know things. Uh, Past uh, performance, past behavior, people's uh, power and capacity to carry out their will. If I wanted to play a video game tomorrow, that's that's well within my will. And there's no real conflict with anyone that could override my will to play video games because I have control of my own person. And it's not like the government's coming in to f- throw me in prison or something like that. But if the government were gonna do that, uh, God would know that they probably are. They have the drop. And he would know that. And he know that, you know, despite my best intentions, I'm going to fail.
1: God could not know what was going to happen on September 11th. And even then, he could not know that the, the buildings would collapse. Okay, sure. When they were hit. He couldn't know that. Why? Because he couldn't know where the planes were going to hit.
0: Uh, But I thought Bush did 9-11. No, that's a joke. (laughs) That was the result of free will
1: choices as well. So God didn't know that 3,000 people or more were going to die that day.
0: He does not know the date of the death of any individual. So... Who were the fatalists of Jesus's time? It was these Pharisees. And these Pharisees were obsessed with fatalism. And so they approached Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, they were just like Job's friends who all believed in fatalism. There's a reason for everything. Does that sound like Calvinism? These guys are proto-Calvinists, these uh, Pharisees. And they approached Jesus and they say, this Tower of Shalom, it fell. And it killed all these people. So what's up with that? And Jesus said, you fatalists, Do you not know these, these aren't the most wicked people on earth. There, there's no fatalism. There's no reason for this. This isn't being controlled by God. Some things just happen, right? But take that example of destruction and apply it to your own lives. You will just be destroyed. Likewise, if you do not repent. So he took this message of destruction, this happenstance, he used it to counter their fatalism and he used it to call on them to repent right it's not meticulous divine foreknowledge it's not div- meticulous divine predestination that Jesus is pressing with the Pharisees he's countering that james white is the pharisee of his day james white is the job's friends who offer the terrible stupid advice that god loathes and god says if you if you want me to punish these stupid friends of yours job i will do that in fact, from this perspective, when God created,
1: he did not know any single one of us would ever exist.
0: What? That is so shocking and, and terrible to think about. No, what? What? What point are you making? What, what, what world do you live in where that's a scandalous statement? You're living in a mythical fantasy world. Think of how many free will choices have gone into your existence over time. All the choices of who to marry and who not to marry. So we jump from 9-11 to people being born and God not knowing that specific individuals will be born. Oh, we're Calvinist and we think that God's election is for us from time eternity. So we have high value on ourselves because Calvinism is a me-centered theology. And we don't like open theism because we did not have to exist in Open Theism, God did not know that me, the elect, from all eternity, the special chosen person with the me-centered theology, God didn't know that I would exist from all eternity. What is this? What are we listening to, James White? To have
1: kids, not to have kids. I mean, obviously, when, from this perspective, when God created, he, he chose to make the human race, but he had no concept of who was going to be born, who was going to live, now, if you're thinking with me this early in the morning.
0: Yeah, if you're, if you're listening to this, this sounds a lot like some of the stuff he threw out in the Enyart-White debate. And I already addressed that. I don't think Enyart addressed the, the absurdity of these points specifically. Of course, there's a lot of things to address in a debate. So you have to kind of pick your battles. But this, this is particularly absurd. God says that he regrets making humans in Genesis 6. This is a regret his not 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 he he doesn't regret that the people became wicked. he regrets his own actions in making mankind. No, God did not know every single person to ever be born and every single action from before time eternal. That's not the biblical concept maybe Mr James white, Dr James White, Dr Mr James White, maybe Christianity's not for you. Have you ever looked into uh the, the some sort of religion that might be? more, you know, complementary to your beliefs. Maybe something like uh, Platonism. Yeah, you, that, that sounds like more your style, not Christianity, not where God laments his own actions when he t- sees that his beloved creation has so utterly failed him that he ends up having to destroy his creation that he loved, that he bestowed his image on, and this emotional, gut-wrenching destruction of his own people in his own image, right? That's the Bible, not Calvinism. Morning. you're going,
1: wow, boy! about everything we've ever believed about God having a purpose and a plan in this world <laughs> has to become exceptionally vague. It has to become, uh, there, there can be no specificity in it outside of God intends to win in the end.
0: Okay, so go find plans in the Bible and see how specific they are. Are they they super minutely detailed and everything is uh, planned out uh, very meticulously, or are they broad concepts? God is going to do this. God is going to destroy Israel. God is going to enslave Israel. Oh, guess what? You guys uh, have repented for a bit, so let's postpone that destruction till another time, based on your actions. And no, individual behaviors, individual hand wiggles, like there's a soldier walking and then he whistles while he walks. Individual soldier whistles are not being controlled by God in the Bible. It is. It is broad and it's vague. And the prophecy in the Bible is broad and it's vague. And there's multiple ways to fulfill this prophecy, which is pretty definitive evidence for open theism because if calvinism was true if divine exhaustive foreknowledge was true you'd expect prophecy to be incredibly detailed is such that there's no denying that the prophecy was fulfilled instead you see these vague prophecies and then you have these prophecy fulfillments where sometimes it's like well was the prophecy fulfilled yes it was in a way. Uh, Then you go back and you look into the prophecy and the language of the prophecy, and you look for little nuances in the words, and you're like, well, this word will allow this interpretation, so in this way it was fulfilled. You shouldn't have any of that. You should not have any of that in a system in which God exhaustively knew everything to ever happen. But the Bible's not written by Calvinists. The Bible's not written by Platonists who think, that God is outside of time and an eternal now. It's not, it's written by open theists where prophecy operates in a rational manner.
1: But who and how, how could God know any of that? And indeed, some of the leading proponents of this perspective
0: will tell us, for example, uh, some of you have heard a debate, I would like to go back and remind the listeners that everything that he started with, like the first five to seven minutes, he just dropped that completely. He didn't explain how that applies to open theism. It was just a non sequitur. It was just, he's just pulling it out of his butt. And it's just stuff he generally doesn't like. And he doesn't tie it into open theism. And he's not providing solid examples of anyone, particularly in open theism that he's strawmanning after that entire section that had nothing at all to do with open theism, that he wasted a ton of time just talking about nothing about.
1: I did at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, um, also in 2001, uh, against Dr. John Sanders. Dr. Sanders is one of, I would say, the three most popular, maybe not well, prolific as far as books goes, too, would be a, would be a fair statement as well. Uh, John Sanders, Clark Pinnock, and Gregory Boyd would be the three most prolific, certainly they were the ones chosen by the Evangelical Theological Society to write, Uh, and if any of you uh, are really looking for information on this subject, uh, what you might want to do is get hold of the uh, June 2001 or 2002, I'd have to look at the specifics again, Uh, it was the uh, Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society where, in essence, it was a three-on-one debate, Uh, Gregory Boyd... Uh, Clark Pinnock and John Sanders versus
0: uh, uh, Bruce Ware. I think there was a little bit more against John Sanders and the open theists than just Bruce Ware. And Bruce Ware's arguments were terrible, really. So if you go read those, Bruce Ware's arguments are against Arminianism. And it's pointed out by Boyd and Sanders. I don't know who exactly said that. He said all these arguments that he's making that open theists aren't Christians can be applied to Arminians. And so these Calvinists, because Arminians have a lot of power, they, they're treating them like friends, where in reality, in Calvinist theology, Arminians are the enemies. Right? If if Arminians were a minority, like open theists were, uh, Calvinists would claim their heresy. They'd excommunicate them. They would try to just run them out of town. But since there's such a major portion of Christianity that's Arminianism, they pretend to be friends. These Calvinists.
1: I think Michael Horton may have throwing something in there too, as I'm thinking about it now. But anyway, uh, excellent uh, journal uh, to get hold of if you want to have
0: information on the subject of open theism. Tell your audience to Google it, ETS, open theism. It's going to bring them right there. You could have saved yourself like five minutes of, that's an exaggeration. You could have saved yourself a lot of time explaining where to find this stuff.
1: Anyways, Dr. Sanders, in his book on this subject, said that in God's plan, while the incarnation had been a part of God's eternal plan, the cross was not.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Jesus says that a legion of angels could come and save him from the cross. And, and Jesus actually asks God to forego the crucifixion. He says, if possible, let this cup pass from me but not my will, but yours be done, because he hedges his bet. He, he understands God's plans, and he wants to go along with God's plans, but he's he's checking to see if there's a different way to go about this, because he's not sure, and he's not a believer in divine providence and omniscience of all future events and predestination. He's, he's, he's not under this idea that the future is set. He is under the impression that his petitions can change the future, can change God's plans. And in such a way that this event that uh, James White, he puts all his emotions into, he's like, oh, this, this has to, has to happen. You disagree with Jesus. You, James White, disagree with Jesus. That's who you're up against. It's your emotions versus Jesus. Now I've I've always wondered about
1: that. What? Oh, okay. That would have to result in a in a non salvific purpose of the incarnation. What was was God just
0: going to visit for? That would that have to have to really? Where where, where do you get this from? Uh, some some sort of evidence, and and not just your opinions, not just your speculation on the, the purpose and process of the cross, not your speculation on on what can and can't satisfy whatever theory of atonement you have not just your speculation show us some hard evidence or else it's just your emotions talking
1: for a while or exactly what was the purpose here you know i i've never found anything in scripture about the incarnation separate
0: from the purpose of the cross you know i I, I... (laughs) What, what was jesus's ministry what was did jesus preach anything about himself was Jesus's gospel about himself, or, or any time that people tried to talk about who Jesus was, did he hush him up? He was like, okay, you got it, but don't tell anyone, right? So what was the purpose of the incarnation there? Was it was it just the cross? That that was the only thing. It couldn't have been. It couldn't have been the national salvation of Israel to to reform him into a priest nation to bring the rest of the world to to Yahweh, right? Because that's what reading the Bible that sounds like to me when I'm reading what Je- Jesus's primary ministry was. And it looks like everything after the cross is a retroactive, trying to understand what, what the purpose of the cross was, how it works. Even in Acts, when Jesus raises from the dead, he doesn't talk about atonement theology in the days that he spends with his apostles. He, he doesn't focus on that as uh, something spectacular. Right? It's business as normal. They seem to be inextricably linked in in everything I've ever seen.
1: But the point being that for Sanders, the dialogue of the of the of the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane for it to have any meaning had to mean that even at that point, the cross was not a certainty. The cross. Yeah, yeah was not something that was necessarily yes, a part of God's purpose.
0: <laughs> and I can't accept that because of my emotions and I'm an emotional man. And so Sanders will go so far as to say that God was surprised when Adam fell. Yeah. Yes. He wasn't expecting that. He was not expecting that. He knew it was a possibility. You see,
1: God knows the possibilities. God knew the possibility when He created that Adam might fall, but He 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 considered it to be a tremendously unlikely event.
0: Uh, well, okay, is that projection? Are you Are you just making that up, or do you got a quote on that? That is tremendously unlikely. What percent? Quote someone. Quote someone. Just don't make stuff up. Okay. And so, if I tell my kids uh, that they need to go clean their room, uh, I could put percentages on if they will clean their room or if they won't. I could put like a 90% certainty that they will attempt to start cleaning their room. And I could probably put on like a 99% certainty that they won't finish cleaning their room. And, you know, try, give us something. Give us something. So God thinking that man would fall, where would I put that? Because Because this is speculative theology here. Here we are now talking about the Bible, something that's not covered in the Bible, mentioned in the Bible, that we're speculating on. And and it's a good thing to do when you're speculating, Mr. James White. When you're speculating, let's say you go a whole 15 minutes without opening the Bible. When you're speculating, tell people you're speculating. Yeah, that's a good idea. So then, then people understand that what you're talking about is your own interpretation of the evidence that you're trying to Put some rationality on, put some some of your own thoughts behind rather than trying to understand the text. It's your own speculation. So my own speculation, God probably gave it a 20, 30% possibility. He put the trees in the garden and, and it's for a purpose, right? It's to test them. So he doesn't know what they're going to do. Just like when he brought the animals to Adam to see what Adam would call them. He didn't know. He didn't know. And it's a curious thing, a new creation. you create something you're like, what is this? What's it gonna do? Uh, you know you have a baby, where's it gonna crawl what what does it want if if I grab the baby's leg while the baby's crawling, what will the baby do? It's curious there's there's a curiosity and you just don't know it's not certainties and it's not like, oh, it's extremely unlikely it's it's uh you know point zero 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 one percent possibility that he would fall find a quote find a quote because that's what you're presenting it as and you're just making it up and ever since then he's been dealing with the rather tragic results of that unintended event yeah and, and guess what god tried to undo all of creation with the flood because he regretted it so much and then after the flood he decides not to destroy the earth in in perpetuality he decides not to for the same reason that he destroyed it, because the intention of uh, man's heart was evil from their youth. He lowered his standard. He is dealing with the consequences of his creation as we speak. It's a creation that he wanted at one time to undo completely, entirely, and get rid of. That's biblical theology. Not not your moralizing, not your, oh, my feelings won't allow this, this thing. Oh, I'm going to... I'm just going to state things that I think are bad, and then the audience needs to agree with me that these things are bad because of our emotions. Our emotions. Now, you might say, well, this open theism,
1: it sounds a little bit like uh, ancient Socinianism, Going back quite some time. (laughs) they likewise denied to god exhaustive foreknowledge of future events but they also had all sorts of other wild stuff where they denied the deity of christ and
0: things like that so wow you sound like a fatalist you sound like a platonist you sound like an ancient greek worshiper of zeus who believed in fate so if you're going to just grab random characteristics and then just say oh you sound like these people over here because you share this similar characteristic uh, what, what what are you doing? You're just poisoning the well. You are poisoning the well. You are a worshipper of Zeus because you're a fatalist. And the ancient Greeks were fatalists too. Because look at the, you know, the whole op, op, uh, Oedipus thing. You know, Oedipus where he's fated to uh, kill his dad and sleep with his mom. And then he did and it was fate. And and guess what, Mr. Calvinist? You worship Zeus because you have this one thing in common. All right, that's what he's doing here. He's poisoning the well, and it's it's not a very good parallel. I think we've covered this elsewhere, where you know that this ancient heresy that he references has absolutely nothing to do with open theism, absolutely nothing. And and just having one element in common, a very minor element in their their theology, that is is that enough for a condemnation? Is that why they were condemned? That one element, or is that just very very minor? Are you blowing something out of proportion for emotional argumentation? Are you being an emotional man, Mr. White?
1: So there are differences, obviously. Uh, obviously. That's true, but this movement has found a home in conservative evangelical churches.
0: Yeah, because it, conservative evangelical churches tend to care what the Bible says. They They actually care a little bit more about what the Bible says. Than ancient Greeks in 300 AD, St. Augustine, he'd come into the text and saying, look at this Bible, everything it says is silly and absurd, so I'm going to reject it. And so then I'm going to go check out this philosophy over here and this philosophy over there and then find Platonism and, oh, I love Platonism. It's so super good. Uh, but then my priest tells me, he says, why don't you just start reading the Bible in spiritual lens? And uh, Simplicanus says, well, I'm glad you stumbled upon the books of the Platonists because that really tells you what the Bible's really saying. You, you can't read the stupid stories in the Bible. That's stupid nonsense with, you know, literal readings of events in a historical setting. No, all that's nonsense. You throw it all out, throw that in the trash, and then use Platonism to interpret the Bible. And then Augustine, he's like, yes, that's what I want to do. I can now accept Christianity. And so this is the tradition that he is latching on These people who reject the Bible in, in, in opposition to the text. And now he's mad that people in the modern day who take the Bible seriously, that they're turning to open theism because they can read. They are literate. They are able to understand words that they read. And that's why they're turning to open theism, because they can read.
1: And the reason isn't all that difficult to discern you see you can present this perspective in a very attractive way you can present this perspective in a very attractive way that that tugs at the emotion and sadly
0: <laughs> what have you been doing for 15 16 minutes here mr white you've been you've been making emotionally charged arguments Oh, if open theism wasn't true, then the cross is a contingency plan. Oh, if open theism wasn't true, then God wouldn't know me being born as a baby. Mr. James... Can can you imagine God not knowing James White? Very famous Mr. James White. Very, very, uh, you know, myself, me, James White, who everyone loves, and who's the smartest guy on earth, and God wouldn't know me. Can you imagine that? No. No no that's emotion that's emotion so you're projecting you're projecting in many
1: places in our land today emotion is the primary developing force of theology
0: who would have thought how ironic you'd bring that up
1: not scriptural exegesis
0: we live in a (laughs) how ironic you would bring that up how ironic. What do the biblical scholars say about Yahweh as presented in the Bible, especially secular scholarship? How did they think the ancient Jews thought about Yahweh? Was it in light of, are any of these secular scholars of the Old Testament, do, do any of them think that ancient Jews believed in the Calvinist, unchangeable, immutable, pure simplicity outside of time God? None of them do. They, they should lose their jobs if they think that, because that's so outrageously stupid. It's so outrageously stupid. It's not in the text. And they're not a real scholar if they believe it. It's just a complete rejection of the Bible. It's not scholarly at all. And so, do you accept actual biblical exegesis? Do you accept treating the Bible rationally? Do you accept reading comprehension? You don't. You don't. The postmodern society. And hence, it is so easy to
1: see in our society how people are, are swayed by horrifically bad arguments that have no logical <laughs> consistency to them whatsoever. But it's.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, it is terrible that people are swayed by completely irrational, emotional arguments. I totally agree. I totally agree. It's all a matter of my truth, your truth, my preferences, your preferences.
1: We see that. This is a political season. <laughs> and if you want to see the low value placed upon truth in our society, just, just, just listen to the dividing line. Watch a little television, listen to a little radio. It's a sad thing, and face it, the church is deeply influenced by the culture in which we live. And even though the scriptures do not even begin to give us this kind of a very wishy-washy style of, of, of belief and theology. Yet we bring that in from outside and then apply it to the scriptures and apply it to our theology. Ooh. And so there are those who are presenting the idea that, look, the old, the old doctrinal way of looking at things
0: turns God into a cold, remote Not the biblical God. Yeah, it does not turn him into Yahweh that we see presented throughout the scriptures, who's constantly pleading, begging, being thwarted. Right? He wants the best for Israel. Like in Judges, the cycle of apostasy is that is that what they call it? The cycle of apostasy, where he's like, you know, you guys were evil, so I punished you. But then I heard your groanings, and I repented of my punishment, and I saved you. But it didn't really work out for me because he just became more wicked than before. More wicked than before. This is, this is how we see God act throughout the Bible. And all of this is rejected in Calvinism. All of this is rejected in this Platonistic uh, theology that, oh, God's immutable and he's impassable and he can't receive things from outside himself because then he wasn't the greatest God. and fr- What? This, this, that is not Christianity. Yeah. You're on a whole different playing field. That's a whole different religion that that's not biblical theology. It's not anywhere described in the Bible. No ancient Jew thought like that. None of them did. None of them did. It's it's total. Retrojection onto the text. It's total ignoring of the text.
1: Certainly God must relate with you as we relate to one another or everything we see in scripture
0: becomes nothing but a charade. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so here's the Calvinist theology that God predestined everything to ever happen Every single lie. So even grand lies are all predestined for God, for his greatest glory. And so in that sense, the entire Bible could be just this big mastermind lie for God's greatest glory. Maybe his ultimate plan is to send everyone and burn them all to death for eternity. And the Bible is just this fabrication to his greatest glory, minutely controlling everything, right? Yeah, right. And what what are we? We're just puppets. We're just puppets playing out this divine drama for God's greatest glory. Yeah. Yeah. Is that that biblical? Do we see this this theology presented in the Bible where we're all just divine puppets? And it does turn God into this moral monster where everything, literally everything that happens is to God's greatest good. So no matter how depraved, how wicked, how deceptive, right? If the entire Bible turns out to be an incredible lie, if Calvinism is true, and the entire Bible is this lie, and the whole purpose of the Bible is to get people just to mess with people who are marionettes in the first place, to torture everyone for eternity to God's greatest glory, if that all happened, Calvinism still, you know, it endorses that. That's great for Calvinism because it's all to God's greatest glory. He could eternally damn people from all of eternity. He could eternally lie to people from all of eternity. For what? For his greatest glory. It's all great stuff. It's good stuff. They love it. They love it. And then there's always lots of stories to tell. One of the most famous stories, I don't
1: know that he ever intended it this way, but Pastor Gregory Boyd from up at Bethel Seminary tells the story of a parishioner Who did everything right she sought pastoral counsel before her she did not rush into anything she fasted and prayed they went through premarital counseling everybody in the church said this is a perfect match i mean they did everything by the book and she comes to pastor boyd she's been abandoned She's been cheated upon. Her heart's been trampled upon. And she says to him, If I didn't hear from God before this marriage, then you can't hear from God. You can't tell me a thing I didn't do. I did everything by the book. And if, if I didn't hear from God, then that means you can't hear from God. And it's all, it's all, a, it's all a joke. Those are compelling stories because Dr. Boyd goes on to say... How do you respond to that? And all of us feel the weight of having to deal with practical applications of theology.
0: Yeah, so what, how does Boyd deal with this? I'm sure he, he talks about how Boyd deals with it. But he, he started this entire speech about dealing with people's issues in a hospital, dealing with pain management. And whose approach is, is best? or people in pain, is it the Boyd approach, or is it the White approach? Is it Boyd's approach that God tried to work with you, tried to be with you, but there's other elements at play. There's wicked elements in this world that uh, have control. That's that's the Boyd theology. Or is it the the Dr. White theology? Oh, God killed your kid for his greatest glory. Bazooka. I don't know, whatever they say in Big Bang Theory. I don't really watch this show. Bazinga, bazinga, they say. Bazinga, he killed your kid, bazinga. No, no. The the Calvinism, their theology is morally void, morally vapid and vacant. And it creates God as this moral monster. So even if Calvinism is true, yeah, which sure, sure, it might be true. But if it is true, the Bible is absolutely false and the Bible doesn't describe Calvinism at all. But if Calvinism was true, and God's a moral monster, he'd be a moral monster.
1: And there's nothing wrong with the practical applications of theology. In fact, the greatest heresies have actually developed when theology was allowed to exist by itself off in some ivory tower and didn't have to interact with the people in
0: the church, the people in the pews. So we understand the importance of looking at... I like it when uh, Calvin, not Calvin, I'm sorry, when Augustine, he was uh, almost rioted on by his church. His church, he's, you know, he gets up there and he preaches his sermons, and his entire church rioted against him. I just, rem- what boy, just saying is, uh, it reminded me of that, that antidote. And we find that in Augustine's, newly uncovered sermons. There is a bunch of uh, trove of sermons that were discovered uh, fairly recently. I don't think there's any real English translations floating around for for public consumption, but it uh, is referenced in the Robert Lane Fox book that uh, we have previewed on our podcast. But I don't know what this white point has to do with anything. ...practical examples, and, and we would
1: have to give an answer, given our doctrine of God, to that lady. Because it's one thing to sit in the systematic theology class, and it's one thing for the professor to go, very good, young man. You read your lesson. You read your 14 systematic theologies uh, last night. You've slept only, you know, 30 minutes in the past three, three days. And, that's what it's supposed to be to be a seminary student. Some of you are grinning. Some of you are grimacing. It's one thing to s- stand there and get the, pat- the, uh, the accolades pat on the back from the professor.
0: Oh, can you drag this story out any longer? All right, after this story, well, we're going to have to kind of wrap it up. Notice we're already 20 minutes in. Zero Bible. Zero Bible. Nothing. This uh, two-hour talk on the, on the Bible on open theism, no Bible. It's all my emotions. And you know it, it's, it'd be fine to have a couple practical examples to leave. It, when, you, when you're writing a movie, you have an intro. you have, you have an illustration. You have uh, uh, something that frames the discussion, and then you move into the substance. But all of his stuff is it's all framing. It's uh, zero substance, and it's just it just goes on. Oh, it's painful. It's something
1: completely different to sit in the office with that lady. And she's expecting an answer. You know what Boyd's answer was? Here's what Boyd's answer was. You did hear from God. You did hear from God. God instructed you to marry. And what your husband did, God never expected. God never expected. He
0: would. Yeah, if only we had some examples of this in the Bible. Oh, wait, wait, we do. We do. God picks Saul to be king of Israel, and then Saul fails, and God says, I regret, not that you became evil, you started rejecting me, Saul, I regret my own actions in picking you to be king. So, so we do have practical examples of this practical theology, right? It's not like he's coming out of left field with this. This is a biblical example. He would do that.
1: As far as God could see, at that point in time, you were the perfect match.
0: Yeah, like when he picked Saul. At that point in time, he was the righteous person he was the person to pick he was a prophet who went into these ecstatic prophecies and he was a god-loving man but then he fell from grace and god regretted picking him as king this is the bible this is the bible but do, do you address this do you talk about that? well not not in the, not in this podcast not in this what is it your little lecture your 2-hour lecture you don't talk about those things you don't talk about the Bible, you don't talk about examples in the Bible that line up with open theist points, because that would undermine your position. So you'd rather strawman. you'd rather rely on these emotional arguments. Oh, let's listen to what Boyd says. Oh, we don't like that. I don't like that. Yeah, what? God picked something and then it turned out bad? Well, I don't like that. That doesn't sound nice. It doesn't make me feel all warm and fuzzy. My name is James White Scholar. And so all of us agreed that, that God gave us the, the, the go-ahead
1: on, on that marriage. And God is grieved at what your husband has done. His heart's broken. But there's nothing he can do about it. Now he'll help you to put your life back together again.
0: Yeah, like he might choose a different king for Israel. Maybe one David, right? There's a David. There's a guy named David who was king of Israel, who God also warned, and he said, you know, if you turn away from me, I'll take the kingdom from you too. You know, I'm giving you this eternal kingdom. I told Saul I would have given him the eternal kingdom, but he turned out bad, so he doesn't get the eternal kingdom. David, you get the eternal kingdom, but if you become bad, if your kids become bad, I'll take away your eternal kingdom.
1: That was his answer. what's wrong with that answer
0: answer my feelings my feelings are hurt I don't like that answer I mean
1: she seemed to accept it there are many people seeming to accept that today in fact when I became a hospital chaplain I remember I had no experience in it I had graduated from seminary but I had focused upon theological classes
0: primarily in seminary because that's what my ministry was about and Pausing the podcast real quick, think about how bad that would suck. You're in the hospital, you're dealing with all sorts of tragedy, and then you get James White to be your hospital chaplain. You're like, oh, oh, pain upon pain. This is like doubling down on uh, someone's uh, pain and misery. You get James White and then he comes in. I got my Calvinism here. Maybe that will help you. Calvinism, please. Calvinism. And there hadn't really been any classes offered that I could recall that
1: would have been exceptionally relevant anyways. And I remember before I first began that work, I went down to the Christian bookstore and looked through the Christian counseling section. Boy, was that a shock. And I'm looking through all these books, and I, I buy five or six of them, and I take them home. And I'm sitting there reading them. And every one of them basically says the same thing. And they pretty much all were coming from what I would identify now as an open theistic perspective. Don't,
0: don't. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I bet. I bet that the way that people deal with suffering the best is from an open theism perspective and not a Calvinism perspective because Calvinism is abhorrent, abhorrent.
1: Blame God for any of this. God was otherwise indisposed, I guess. I'm really not sure exactly what their position was. They weren't overly consistent in their theology. But the idea was separate God from the tragedy.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Usually that is the correct answer, that it wasn't God's doing. And I I remember spending a completely sleepless night. And, and God killed your kid is not the right answer, James White. As I knew, and it,
1: and it ended up working out this way, when you work as a hospital chaplain, anyone ever done any hospital chaplaincy here? Man, I, Let me tell you something. That is one of the hardest jobs you
0: could ever do. I don't know how anybody does it on a long-term basis. I really don't. Yeah, I'm going to have to give James White some credit here. I mean, it is a hard job, and it's a job that no one wants because you're dealing with pain and suffering all the time. I spent a lot of uh, time in the hospital myself. My oldest son has leukemia. We spent a lot of sleepless nights listening to kids screaming in the next room. You know, my kid was old enough to understand what was happening and kind of why it was happening, and and old enough to kind of— he was six at the time he was diagnosed, so he he had some understanding and some capability, but some of these kids— they're just like little kids. They're like two-year-olds, three-olds, and they're dealing with a lot of painful situations that they can't even comprehend. They just don't understand why these things are happening to them. And people die, and people die. Little kids die. It's a painful situation, and I don't wish hospital chaplaincy on anyone. You know, whenever the chaplain kind of tried to come into our room, it's like, Psh, yeah, yeah, we're okay. We're okay. You could you could go do something else. We're fine. And uh, it's a painful job. It's a painful job. So I do have to give him some credit. But let's finish out this thought by James White before we wrap this up. We we really are 23 minutes into this podcast, into James White's talk, and he has not opened the Bible. He has not opened the Bible. And that's very striking. That's, That's what struck me most forcibly the first time I listened to this talk.
1: In a large hospital... And I live in Phoenix, and uh, I know if you've never been out that direction, some people f- figure all of us who live in Phoenix wear 10-gallon hats and uh, eat rattlesnake and uh, and uh, things like that and ride horses and stuff like that. Um, how many of you know where Phoenix ranks as far as
0: size and population in, in the United Do people like this? Do they, they like these extended stories that just add in trivia little details they, they they must maybe maybe it's a personal thing but it takes so long to tell these stories the states maybe i have an idea number five
1: we just passed philly just passed philadelphia there are only four cities
0: in in in, in uh, chicago new york remember the last uh, time we talked about james white on this program and he just he just interjected this teaching in Europe for some no no apparent reason he didn't have a point and it didn't really illustrate anything it was just a just a little story that had zero relevance to anything that he just threw into his talk for no apparent reason i think i think that goes on a lot with the james white stories i don't know does it make you more liked by the audience i don't know maybe maybe i should start interjecting some random stories York, la and somebody else, huh?
1: Houston y'all, Houston, y'all. Um, and uh, it's a big city, it's a hot city, but it's a dry city in comparison to this, let me tell you something. Um, <clears throat> we don't have any major sports teams at the moment, but. Um <laughs> sports teams, okay. Some of you are going, yes you do, no, no, we, we, we really don't. Um, in fact, if any of you back here, how about the, the Middletown Cardinals? Would you like to have an NFL team? We'd like to send you one. We really would. Um, <laughs> it's pretty sad. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, it's a large hospital there in the Phoenix area. And I knew already from having been there a few times that uh, there was this sound. There was this bell that would go off when they had a code, cardiac arrest, anywhere in the, in the hospital. And my job was to drop whatever I was doing and to get there ASAP. Now, I'll be honest with you, it's been a number of years since I worked there, and still, when I hear any sound even semi like that, uh, I break out in a cold sweat. I truly do. And I knew that very first night that I might be facing that situation, and I did. very first night I was there alone, without anybody else, had a code, and it resulted in death very first night. And so I'm reading these books very seriously as sleepless night. Cause the problem was everything I was reading in these books was telling me to deny what I believed about God. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. I read in the Bible that not only is God sovereign over all things, but, uh, he's sovereign over life and death.
0: I think you're misreading the Bible there, my friend. I, I don't think it says what you think it says. There's something in the Psalms about, uh,
1: about the length of my, my life being
0: known to God. Yeah, you might want to read Calvin's commentary on that. It, it doesn't say what you think it says. So read Calvin and uh, this time agree with Calvin about his interpretation of that text. My birth, my death. and i had this theology that told me that god has a purpose in all things and, and the theology that's interjected onto the text I, I don't know if does this count as him opening the bible he's actually at least alluding to the bible in some capacity we're we're 26 minutes in and now we got some allusions to the bible so that that's progress progress but does it fully count yet not really he's not even talking about the text and what the text means and and it's funny that he doesn't know what Calvin says about his proof text. When you face tragedy, the comfort is to be found not in a God who was just as shocked as you were, but in a God who has... That, that's what Open Thea says. God is just as shocked as you were. Maybe in that story earlier, but it's not like the, the at September 10th, God is shocked on September 11th, Usually these things are like a gradual revel- revelations and uh, people say, oh, this, this, this husband is now acting weird. So it's not that shocking when he cheats on his wife or whatever. Right? So it's not like our type of shock. It's, it's, it's kind of a misrepresentation.
1: I had a purpose that transcended even my knowledge of what th- that tragedy might be. And so all these books are telling me to counsel in the exact opposite way of what I believed. Yeah. Well, I came to a conclusion. It wasn't very long, by the way, before I discovered that when you are in an emergency room, and my job, in essence, at that time, was um, when they were bringing somebody in by ambulance, for example, to the emergency room. My job was to get there. When the firemen are coming toward the door, doors, one of those motion sensor things, I'd sort of stick my pad, my notepad that I always had with me out to get the door open so they could get through without having to pause. And then I'm supposed to watch. Where's the family? Where's the family? I grabbed the family, and we had this room that might have been about the size of, of, of these two pews right here. This little section It was tiny. That might be even larger now that I think about it. And I had to shuttle him in there, and my job was to be the go-between between the emergency room doctors, and staff, and the family. And uh, I learned pretty quickly that in the emergency room, that's not the place for a whole lot of uh, extended discussions of theology.
0: What that tells us is that he tried it. He tried it. What can you imagine? You're that family. And uh, someone's dying, and then James White comes up to you and says, I got some Calvinism to talk about. No, get the heck out of here. I don't need you. Get away from me. Shoo, James White. Uh, I like the character arc in this, uh, in this story. James White grew as a human being and figured out that his theology did not have a practical place in this situation. He figured that out pretty quickly, he says. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad he's a fast learning. That's a place of raw emotion. Yeah, uh, I saw every
1: kind of. Uh, thankfully, we were in a trauma one-level center, or I would have seen a whole lot more. That would have been really right. incredible. But I saw a lot of. Uh, saw a lot. Of, I had never seen anyone die before. Um, that sober[s] you. That that changes you, especially up in CCU. In fact, one of the things I learned in CCU is. I walk in there and see somebody with all those tubes and wires and stuff like that. They could have pulled up to that hospital in a Lexus or a 74 Volkswagen, and you all look the same in one of those beds. Doesn't matter what you got. Doesn't matter. You all look the same. And I saw good deaths, and I saw bad deaths. I saw a lot of despair. I saw a lot of people just had no hope. And I remember the 95-year-old Christian man Every time the CCU, the nurses would come to take blood, he'd say, thank you, honey. I mean, they just poked him and he'd go, thank you, honey. And they just loved him, but they knew he was dying. And one of the nurses took me aside one day and said, I've got to tell you what he said. He said, I started talking to him. I said, you know you're dying, don't you? And he says, yes. And she says, are you afraid? And he said, honey, old, old men say honey to everybody, uh, to ladies especially. Um, honey, he said, I've been talking with God for over 90 years. Why would I be afraid to go see him? Amen. And man, she, that, that's something you remember, you know. And it just so happens, ha, 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 ha that uh, I was on duty, walked into CCU. He didn't have any of his close relatives living in this area. That was one of the difficult things, being in Phoenix, is that we'd have numbers of people who would come in, older people who had retired out there, but their family wasn't anywhere near Phoenix. They all lived back here someplace. Um, and the sad thing was many of them came out there and then they never got involved in the church. I can't tell you how many times I'd walk into somebody's room and uh, I'd look at the little thing here, it says Baptist or something. It says, so, uh, where do you go to church? well we used to be a member of brother so-and-so's church in illinois and then we moved out here and you know uh we've been looking we just haven't found
0: this is a problem with this uh problem with these stories is they go nowhere they go they, they go on and on and they don't go anywhere and uh what's your point come on come on get to it place. how long have you been out here 26 years <laughs>
1: pretty arid place out there in Arizona, as far as churches go, I guess. uh, But anyway, I I came in and there was a sort of extended relative, one of the only relatives I had seen with this elderly man. And so I visited with her because he had slipped away. He had slipped into a coma. I visited with her and while I was standing there, after a while, especially since I was a biology major in college, I started learning to recognize things. And I could tell as I was standing there, he was slipping away. The nurse came in, nurse stood on one side, Relative stood on this side, held his hand, and uh, he slipped into eternity while we stood there. Um, That was so different than so many of the others, so many of the others that we encountered. I came to the conclusion, sorry about the extended uh, personal story there, but I came to the conclusion very early on in that work that I could not, to make my job easier, steal from someone the greatest hope I could offer them just simply to make it easier for me to give an answer. What do I mean by that? I couldn't look someone in the eye and say, God had no purpose in this tragedy, and then turn around and say, but God has a wonderful purpose for your life. People tend to recognize, wait a minute, (laughs) those two don't fit. You mean he has wonderful purpose for me, but didn't have one for my loved one? How does that work? I couldn't steal from them the the greatest thing I could tell them just to try to make my job easier. But I discovered that that really wasn't something that happened much in in the emergency room. It was something that happened in the lost support group.
0: Yeah, no one wants to hear your theology. In a time of tragedy, walking in there with your theology is not the right time and place for it. Support group, that's when you talk these things out. I'm glad James White learned that, and he learned that apparently the hard way, where he came in there, he was naive, he tried to impose his ideas of what, how to deal with grief, he tried to impose those against, against every th- single thing he read. Every single thing he read told him to do something else than what he decided to do, and he found out that that's not a very good idea. And so then he takes his, his theology, which is not biblical theology. Let's keep that in mind, that none of this is in the Bible. It's antithetical to the Bible. And he, he would, he'd probably have a better home in Platonism, something that's not Christianity, not relational theology with Yahweh. And so he takes this and he takes it to these support groups. Great. You're proselyzing there.
1: The people who are six months out. And that's why there's a book. We don't have it downstairs. Most of you have never heard of it. But I actually wrote a book on grieving. Um, a couple years after I wasn't at the hospital anymore, a friend of mine's 29-day-old granddaughter died. Uh, his daughter had an epileptic seizure rolled over on the baby, and the baby suffocated. And after the funeral, I went back to my office and I just cleared everything off my desk. And I started writing, and four days later, this little book came into existence. And I only
0: wrote it for him. I didn't really wasn't thinking book when I wrote. And remember when James White was being interviewed, and he talked about it uh, wasn't he? Oh, I think it was on the dividing line. And he said maybe the kid who died would have been the next Hitler. And so maybe that's that that should be his pastoral advice to these people who lose their kid. God killed him because God would have predestined him to be the next Hitler if God didn't kill your kid. Great. wrote it. Uh, but once I did,
1: I sent it to my editor at Bethany House, and he read it and he said, "Man, I want this, but
0: yeah. He said, before I bring it into the into the publishing house, I'm going to take your name off it this this is let's re- remember. This is a talk on open theism and his problems with open theism, and he's just going on with personal stories that have nothing to do with open theism, right? And it's a lot of self-bragging. It's like, oh, I wrote this book on suffering when I was this hospital doctor. That was so good. Yeah, but then, you know, kind of, you kind of downplay your, your tragic missteps, right? And how you didn't really have a grasp on how to deal with grieving for a long time. So maybe maybe his book's interesting. Maybe there's some good stuff in it. But uh, I, I, best, I bet he presses his theological agendas, especially in those support groups the six months after. And that's really, really, if, if you got someone in your life who's suffering, wait till they're past that initial period before you start talking to them about stuff. Until that time, that's the time for listening. That's the time for sitting and, and letting them talk to you rather than you interjecting what you want to say onto their problems. Okay.
1: He said, because look at the books you've written. The Roman Catholic controversy, the King James only controversy. What's this going to be, the grieving controversy? I mean, that's just not going to work. So, uh, so, so they took my name off it and they brought it anonymously. And they had the inside, inside readers, publishers, uh, editors uh, read it without a name on it. And they loved it and they wanted it. And only then did my editor say, OK, well, that's actually James White. And they're like, come on, no way. And yeah, that's, that's actually him. So it's actually done very, very well, uh, amazingly enough. But uh, it's, it's, it's an ext- incredibly tough subject. And that's, I guess, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, I don't fit into a lot of the categories that people would like me to fit into. Because when I approach something like open theism, hopefully i approach it by accurately representing what they're saying hopefully
0: <laughs> is that your perception of yourself is that your honest perception of yourself at 33 34 minutes in that you accurately represented open theists that god is nervous god is like nervous nervous about 9 11 oh i don't i'm so nervous 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 When have you ever heard an open theist use that adjective to describe God? Never. Never. Nervous? I think you're projecting your own emotional insecurities onto God. That's the scholarly
1: part, is to accurately represent what's being said. Yeah. But I don't know how to
0: approach theology without passion. I don't understand it. I think it's a sick... Passion and emotionally charged arguments that aren't rational. And to teach a theology class and bore people to death. (laughs) Some of your, some of your talks bore me the hell to death. So I
1: don't understand. Beyond me, utterly and completely beyond me. I I do not comprehend it. I mean, I know, I know scholars who teach theology because they're scholars and it's a scholarly subject and therefore they're going to teach it. I don't understand that. When I teach theology, that's life. You know, how do you,
0: I I don't know how you separate the two of them. I really. All right. So, you know, I gotta, I gotta cut us off. I gotta cut us off this, you know, this whole podcast is going to be like, like an hour and a half already. And he's got nowhere, no Bible, nothing. He's got nothing. He just goes on with these little stories that have nothing to do with anything. And this is how he does theology. This is how he does a talk on open theism. Oh, it's painful. It is painful. I told you this would be a painful episode and I if you didn't believe me, you should believe me. And and if you stuck on, if you if you if you held out till this point, bravo. Congratulations. I I commend your efforts because you know, it's painful for me, it's probably painful for you. There's there's not much things to do commentary on. And so, you know, you just let them ramble, you know. You could cut it out. I could do like little zip noises. But then ah, you kind of miss the spirit of his mentality. But okay, we're going to cut it off there. If you have any questions or comments, send that to GodIsOpenQuestions at gmail.com. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher, and thank you for listening.